The Lifestylist, episode 57, featuring Anya Fernald. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. You are listening to part two with our guest, Anya Fernald. Don't forget to catch next week's episode, number 58, with Dr. Mark Youssef, where we talk about the power of stem cell therapy. The sound that's currently vibrating your eardrums is the voice of Luke Story, host of The Lifestylist. That's me, and I'm here to bring you an episode today all about the current state of farm-to-table food. That's right. It's a great episode. I just spent the day with our guest, Anya Fernald, at her spot, Belcampo Meat Company. Just ate tons of delicious food and had a chance to really sit down with her and take an in-depth, I think what's going to be a two-part episode, really, into her whole business and her whole viewpoint on farming and raising animals for food. And she is a really bright woman, amazing entrepreneur and CEO, founder, lots of respect, lots of fun in this conversation, and so much to be learned for you. So some of the things that we cover are some great recipes for incorporating organ meats into your diet in a way that is actually uh, that tastes good and is easy to do and something I'm always trying to work on, creating a new, healthier, and more profitable farming model. She's got some great innovations in terms of just starting a business based on farming that's good for the farmers, good for the animals, good for the consumers, and good for the owners. Very cool stuff. Then we crack the code on why pastured animals actually taste so much better and why grass-fed labeled meat is not enough. It's got to be grass-finished. So we're going to teach you how to avoid the food labeling scams around grass-fed meat and you're going to be surprised <laughs> you've probably been scammed a lot already then really how to decode all of the food labels on beef eggs and bacon how to avoid buying inferior products you know when you're in whole foods and you're like oh god which eggs should i buy i mean literally there's like 30 types of so-called pastured eggs and all of those terms are used loosely and they're all kind of you know uh, used for marketing and things like that so you have to kind of know your way around to learn how to get the best stuff and Anya does not disappoint in teaching us what to do then we go into what's worse for the environment monocrops of vegetables or actually just properly rotating herds of livestock what's the natural way that the land is meant to be tended to and the dirty little secrets of chicken farms and factory farming. And finally, how farmers and the environment get hosed by government subsidies. There's kind of a whole agricultural system that's been set up in this country, and it does not serve the farmer, the environment, or the consumer. And so Anya's specialty is really creating a brand new business and farming paradigm that serves all three equally. And I just love this lady. She's really smart, and as I said, just a great entrepreneur. And finally, her kids started, her kids were here and they started crying. We had to end the interview, but we went, I don't know, I think an hour and 40 minutes or something. I could have gone three hours. I mean, she's just an endless treasure trove of information and just a beautiful and fascinating lady. So it was a lot of fun for me. And you know what that means? That means it's going to be a lot of fun for you. So tune in, learn all you can. And if uh, you can get over to Belcampo, if you're in LA, I think maybe by the time this comes out, they might even have a website up and running as she stated in the interview, but it's a very cool company. I love supporting people like this that are conscious and doing things right. So enjoy the show. It's time for a shout out to my friends over at Organifi.com. Everyone knows that green juice is good for you now, right? You see it like in 7-Eleven. There's green juice everywhere. I love my green juice, but there's a couple problems with it. One, it usually comes in plastic, which is less than ideal. Two, it's loaded with sugar. A lot of these green juices that you think are healthy have like 25 grams of sugar. That's like a green Coca-Cola. Not good. But mainly the issue with the green juice phenomenon, for me personally, is that they're not very portable. Even if it comes in glass and it doesn't have sugar, I have to drink the whole thing at once if I'm in my car or I'm traveling or something like that. So they're just not quite convenient all of the time. 
and they'll just go bad if you leave them sitting there. So what Organifi has done is created this amazing superfood green juice blend that comes in a powdered form in a little packet that you can just throw in a bottle of water, any other drink, and make an instant super powerful green juice. So it's got 11 superfoods. It doesn't have any of the swag extra stuff that you don't need. It's just the stuff that you're actually going to feel. So it's got turmeric, chlorella, wheatgrass, spirulina, mint, moringa, ashwagandha, lemon, beets, little matcha green tea for an extra kick there, some coconut water for electrolytes and potassium. And then it's sweetened with monk fruit, which is awesome because it doesn't spike your blood sugar. It's got like a low glycemic index, unlike some of those green juices I mentioned. So it's a really great product. I've been using it for months. You've probably heard me talk about it before. I want to share an opportunity with you to save 20% if you want to check it out. All you have to do is go to Organifi.com and enter the code LIFESTYLIST at checkout and you're going to save 20%. So that's Organifi.com with an I, not a Y. Use the code LIFESTYLIST and save 20%. Check it out. You will not be disappointed. A massive part of my health strategy is the ingestion on a regular basis of medicinal herbs and medicinal mushrooms. And my primary source for those is a company called Four Sigmatic. If you remember way back in the day in episode eight, I had a guest by the name of Taro Isakapula from this company, and we talked all about the power of these amazing herbs and mushrooms. Well, Four Sigmatic do a great job of making them not only potent, but also convenient and delicious. So they make these little packets of herbs that you add to hot water, cold water, or bulletproof coffee, whatever your recipe is. I make them with all kinds of different stuff all the time. It makes a really easy way to get this stuff into your body. And these are herbs that have a real effect on you. It's very powerful stuff. So go to foursigmatic.com, but wait, I'm going to hook it up. When you get to foursigmatic.com, enter the code THELIFESTYLIST at checkout to save 15% off your order. So you can get things like reishi mushrooms, chaga mushrooms, cordyceps, lion's mane, ashwagandha, all the good stuff that really works. So go to foursigmatic.com, enter the code THELIFESTYLIST and save 15% off your order. Anya Fernald is the co-founder and CEO of Belcampo Incorporated, a group of innovative agricultural ventures in California and Belize, which strives to make good food both the old-fashioned way and on a larger scale than ever before. Belcampo employs over 100 people in total with plans to grow awareness, availability, and production of sustainably farmed food through its operations of organic farms, butcher shops and restaurants, as well as unique luxury agritourism destinations. Anya has been recognized as one of the 40 under 40 by Food & Wine, named a Nifty 50 by the New York Times, appeared in a lengthy profile in the New Yorker's Food Issue in 2014, and served as a regular judge on Iron Chef America on the Food Network for the 2009, 2010, and 2011 seasons. Anya's cookbook, Home Cooked, was released in spring 2016 with 10 Speed Press. Anya is an avid consumer and producer of almost everything fermented and spends her spare time with her young children, daughter Viola and son Theo. So, you know, I'm hopeful about shows like this one right here where we're enlightening some people in the audience that might not even know any of this this backstory and maybe someone listening is even like oh i heard about this grass-fed thing like okay that kind of makes sense the animal's meant to eat that if they don't eat that they get sick then you have to pump them full of antibiotics and you create this totally like just grotesque frankenstein model of raising animals not even to mention the the unhumane part of it but isn't it going to be probably that as the public demand grows because of awareness that the suppliers are all going to eventually kind of get on board. I mean, at a certain point, there's probably a tipping point where even your average person going to Walmart or like Food for Less to get their food is probably going to go, oh, yeah, the grass-fed thing. It's like, I think we kind of know that nature is always smarter. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, I mean, if you drive on the five freeway from LA to Northern California, you drive by that big, um, you know, feedlot. Harris Ranch. Is that what it is? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's... I remember just doing that trip being a kid and just like, oh my God, that's so disgusting. That's probably where my hamburger is coming from that I'm eating at the truck stop. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it just, you know, even when I was a kid, I was like, that's not right. Like you look at those poor animals and it was just like, I became a vegetarian at one point for many years just because that's the only model I had of mm -hmm. like how we extract calories from an animal, you know? And it's just, I'm not on board with that's, any of that. I started doing meat camps at our farm because that issue you know we we started to 
and I'd have people up at the farm and they would say, well, where do you keep your cows? You know, and it's like, well, there's 2,500 cows right here. And it's like, you can, you know, you couldn't eat a, like, you couldn't get a sandwich down within 20 miles of Harris Ranch because the stench is so bad. You know, and in productive realities like ours, it's 2,500 animals on, you know, it's a big ranch, but they're all there. And you can, you know, we're outside grilling and cooking and sleeping and eating. And it's like, it smells amazing. It smells clean. You know, that's interesting that the whole, the, the paradigm is so firmly set in this really gruesome, gruesome model. You know, and people don't know that they can break free. I think that one of the challenges, though, is that grass-fed meat takes a lot longer to mature. So, just like with you and me, like you go through puberty and you all of a sudden can gain weight differently. You know, for boys, it's like you can put on much more muscle, much more quickly. For women, it's like you start to gain weight much faster, um, you know, just as, as we get older in general. we And it has to do with, you know, all the hormonal changes around um, puberty. And those hormonal changes are kicked off through diet. So, you know, in the U.S. now that most women get their, you know, women, girls are getting their periods younger and younger. And now the average age is like eight. And, what? Yeah, eight or nine. Are you serious? In inner city and urban areas. And they're not sure why. Oh, my God. But it God. has to do with availability of calories because the calories, I think when you're eating super, super high calorie intense diets, your body's like, great, reproduce. It's time to go. And the same thing happens to cows. So when you have cows on a corn diet, they can actually go through their entire sexual maturity and get to the point where they're able to really pack on the fat as an adult in 18 months. Grass-fed animals, if you, I mean, think about it, if you're feeding a teenager just spinach or feeding a teenager just corn, which one's going to get bigger faster? Um, so the grass-fed animals go through maturity much later and they have to be um, kept alive a lot longer before you have a finished product. So we raise our animals almost a year, a full year longer than conventional agriculture. So, And that's a year longer that you have to have ranch hands and people like tending to those animals too, right? It's right. not just like they're just sitting there and they're good to go. It's like someone has to manage them and move them and It's a huge amount of expense for us. It's yeah. a big part of our difference. And I think that that's one of the challenges for grass-fed meat is that Many ranches that are in the grass-fed space, they're putting animals to market at a very immature state. So I think that the issues that many people have with grass-fed meat is that they're often being sold and served an animal that is just not ready for harvest. And I say this, you know, understanding the economic realities of why those farmers need to do that. I think, unfortunately, one of the hindrances to the grass-fed movement really catching on is that there hasn't been enough of a focus on really great taste quality and that these animals are being butchered. They're never usually being butchered 18 months like a, like a corn-fed animal, but you're talking 21, 22 months. And we've done, you know, we've been trying for years to get that. I mean, I would love to get our age down to 24 months 23 months, but we can't get the quality, we can't get the marbling on it and the tenderness. So I think one of the reasons why this hasn't just caught on like wildfire is that people want that rich, soft, you know, indulgence of a steak. And it just costs a lot more to achieve that in grass fed, unfortunately. So you're interesting because you're a chef and you're, you know, for lack of a better term, a foodie. I hope that's not a derogatory term. I think it's like people that love good tasting food, but you come from that background and having spent time in Europe and all that. But it's really interesting that you have that and the, you know, a hand in the ranching component and that whole process, which is interesting. I don't know a lot of other people doing that. I think most people that I meet in your side of the industry are kind of just like, it's a business and they want to make money, but it's not so much like wanting to create the perfect steak, you know, based on the conditions of how the animal was raised, you know, so it's cool. I wanted to ask you before, and I, I want to ask you before I forget it, what are subsidies? Like, how does that work in the U.S. farming system? And why does that screw up the whole system and prevent more people from doing what you're doing? So subsidies are government payment for the production of eight what are considered key crops. I might be able to list off all of them. Wheat, corn, rice, soy, oats, cotton, and then two more. I don't remember what those ones okay. are. Okay, so those crops were determined at a certain point or designated by the government as being crucial to our autonomy as a country. And it was decided, and this is also just economic stimulus um, after, I think it was the Second World War or some point around that. There are a couple of different factors that led into the development of the system. But those uh, crops are all incentivized. So farmers who grow them receive payments, depending on which crops, either by the acre or by the ton. Um, and it effectively reduces their production costs. So if Farmer Bob grows 
a bushel of oh sorghum's one of them too, I believe. What is that? Um, it's a it's like a grass. No wonder you I'm couldn't sure. remember. That's a weird. It's, I think that's one of them. Sorghum's, okay. but um, so if they grow like a, a bushel of rice, they'll get a hundred dollars from the government. Let's just say, and if their production cost for that bushel of rice is one hundred and twenty bucks, the only price that they need to charge for the rice is. 20 bucks, really, 25 bucks, you know, whatever it is to make their margin. And the other challenge in there is that those are all considered commodity crops. So they're all, the prices for those are considered something that there's no differentiation at all. So no rice is different from a different, I mean, all these rices are considered equal. So the price is effectively set by the market. So these producers take money from the government and then they get their market set prices. Um, But those market set prices assume that every producer is taking that money from the government. So even if it cost me $200 to raise that bushel of rice, I can sell it for whatever, let's say 50 bucks or 25 bucks. So I can sell it for less than it cost me to grow it. And that would be like if in my farm, I could say, well, we currently farm 20,000 acres. It sounds like a lot, but a lot of just dry land that's only green for like a month a year. So really, we have like 3,000 acres of really rich land and the remainder is just dry sort of mountainous land. Um, but it would be as if, you know, of my 20,000 acres of land, I only had to pay to operate a thousand acres. It'd be a lot cheaper for me. You know, my operational costs would drop dramatically and I could sell things for a lot cheaper. So it effectively reduces your operational costs because you get money for the government for every pound or bushel or acre that you produce. Uh, I see. I see. So that kind of locks the farmer into that system then. Once a farmer has entered into that paradigm, it must be exceedingly difficult for them to break free it's almost like a pimp a pimp ho relationship there's no way to break free and it's interesting though i mean the question with gmos there too there's finally been some serious economic research done by some really credible people that have shown that because those farmers are squeezed you know that between the commodity system that sets their prices the government that gives them their inputs they really there's no creative authority there and now they're all using gmos too so it's like they're just i mean they're just cogs they're they're working for a giant factory you know, right, they, they feel right. like they're tough, independent, you know, true American farmers because they're out there on the range being autonomous guys who decide what they're going to do every day. Total bullshit. They're just cogs in a big agro-industrial machine. It's just a factory that doesn't have a single boss. You know, it's a factory that's controlled by these various different, you know, mechanisms, right, that are really powerful economic mechanisms. But they've shown now that the genetically modified farmers are faring worse in the long term because they have... Um, you know, when they're squeezed by the commodity, commodity prices have been extremely low for the past couple of years um, because the Chinese market softened so much for commodities. And those guys are that are going the GMO route because their inputs are higher. Um, they're actually making a much smaller margin, even though their yields are higher. So that's interesting, too, because I think people like us have been fighting the fight for the health side of GMOs. But now it's like the farmer autonomy and just farmer viability side is a pretty compelling argument that I think has a big crossover appeal. It's going to be really interesting to see if activists kind of run with that. Like, this isn't just about like our theories about why this stuff is crap for our bodies and crap for the environment. It's actually like, no, this is actually shafting a lot of like pretty, you know, honest, high integrity middle Americans. Right. Which is another just interesting side of why GMOs aren't so great. I'm totally not going to get off on a politics tangent, but just as a sense of hope, because I know a lot of people are seem to be freaked out at the moment, but perhaps because so much of the new administrative um, (laughs) position is based on like, putting America first and putting American workers back to work and all this stuff, maybe it will have a positive impact in that way because it doesn't make sense financially. It really to doesn't. Like, to keep pushing the whole GMO Monsanto world, maybe the powers that be <laughs> will you know, put a little touch on that industry and incentivize it in the other direction just because it makes sense from a bottom line and just for the well-being of the country's economy. Yeah. I mean, that was my only positive hope with Trump initially was like, well, if anybody's going to say subsidies are ridiculous and call it he could be somebody who does that yeah. you know it's interesting though too another weird piece that i think is interesting connecting the dots on gmo is that you know glyphosate which is the big bad chemical that all these gmos are resistant to the big effect it has is on soils you know so it kills nematodes and it kills rhizomes it kills all the stuff that holds like all the infrastructure of soil is is just knocked out by glyphosate it's the same thing that it does to weeds it does to all the stuff that builds soil. And so with these big climate swings and big rain shifts that we're having, what we're doing with glyphosate in the U.S. is just setting ourselves up for massive erosion and flooding. You know, so it's like there's so many layers where GMOs just work against, I mean, with the changing climate context and what's going to happen with climate in the next few years, GMOs are particularly maladaptive. That's another question. It's like, I wonder when some of the, and then I think if you start to, 
you know, look at that over a multi-year perspective and your risk management, if people with GMOs are going to be non-insurable. I mean, I wonder if 20 years from now, if you had GMOs back in 2017, you were farming GMOs, if in 2037, you're going to be uninsurable. On that's interesting. So on that note, it's not only that the GMOs are bad for our body, but they're bad for all the fungi and everything else that actually creates the soil that creates our food. So it's like systemically uprooting our entire food system. Well, it's like I always think about it as a like an, the same thing about antibiotics and probiotics. It's like that's the that's the whole glyphosate equation for me. Right. You know, mapped out on a human human ecosystem versus a natural ecosystem. Right. And another word for it for the listener is Roundup, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, bad stuff. And and I I keep hearing more and more about that. Like Mercola and a lot of different people are now doing all these you know blog posts and a lot of info about that. But um, I'm hearing a lot that it's almost in everything. Like it's in every woman's breast milk, and it's it's like detectable kind of just throughout our whole ecosystem, which is really scary. But that's why we do shows like this to, you know, help people um, understand. It's like anytime I see something that the ingredient is flour, I'm always like, it's got Roundup in it. It's pretty Mm -hmm. much guaranteed. Yep. You know, not to be paranoid again, but all of those foods you spoke of, the commodity foods that are so likely to be GMO, those are, those foods are like all the foods that I typically avoid because they're also the ones that are kept in silos and are usually full of mold. Like Mm -hmm. those are the most swag, like crappiest food you could ever possibly eat too and that's what if you go in your average grocery store they're all essentially made of corn and soy and wheat like that's it and they're all like to me just non-food foods mm-hmm. they're actually not food and like we're just to circle back to what we're saying how your body begins to be aware of what is actually food and what's not then those foods become even your body knows on a intuitive level when you walk when i walk in ralph's or a store like that i'm just like there's no food in here mm-hmm. you know it's like <laughs> maybe the banana over there or something is like close to food but even that's hybridized and like the nutrition's bred out of it there isn't isn't really a banana like that in nature you know but you walk in there i'm just like how does anyone eat and yet those stores are still full and even in whole foods too it's crazy you go in there and it's like half the things you look at are full of canola oil and it's like that's a health food store, you know? One thing that's been striking me a lot in big grocery stores lately, because I love to go and just hang out in grocery stores and watch what people do, and it's how that fruit and the vegetables don't smell like anything. Have you notice that? It's like you can walk down the cereal aisle and it smells the same way that the fruit and vegetable area smells. Interesting. Because everything's unripe. And it's like, well, how do you expect that we're going to get excited about fruit and vegetable if it doesn't smell like luscious and ripe and appealing? And, you know, it's just funny. It all smells like Lysol and... Right, you know, right. packaged goods like nothing smells like it. Kind of the cheese smells a little bit, you know, yeah, if you yeah. if it's at a Whole Foods or something, and that's about it. You know, it's just funny to me that I think we're the only culture in the world where we've decided that it's it's a good thing to like smells. You're pretty much your only tool before you're about to put something in your mouth that's going to tell you if it's good or not, right? <laughs> right, right? So we've created these environments that like absolutely tell us don't listen to your instincts at all. Don't smell anything. Right, right. You know? Yeah, it's almost been sterilized. Yeah. So if we're, you know, using our eyes and our nose to maybe let our body select what's good for it, another thing is we're doing with our eyes, right? And what we're doing is looking at the appearance of the food, but we're also reading labels. So what's the deal with, you know, I'm a big label fanatic. Like I was talking about eggs. I've I've spent a lot of time trying to decode like some of the, the mislabeling or like misleading terminology that's used. What are some of the things that we might be aware of when we're, you know, even grabbing a burger somewhere and it says grass fed? I'm like, it could be grass fed for two weeks of its life and still be called grass fed. And then they're finishing it on corn to fatten it up. And that basically ruins all the good fats in the meat and you could have a um, a chicken again that's, you know, eggs are free range. Well, what does that even mean? Like, what, what are all those labels like organic and grass-fed and grass-finished and free range and pastured? Can we believe those labels or how can one discern from the true and the false? It depends what you're solving for. I mean, they're all verified claims and they're all regulated. All those claims that you listed off are regulated. Um, so even in our farm where we have, you know, everything third party verified, when I want to put pasture on a box, I have to take it to the government and get approval and take. So does someone months. come out to the farm and look at your chickens running around? And- no, we provide third party documentation. Okay. Nobody ever comes to you. <laughs> okay. But um, but I mean, it is at least it is regulated. The question is, what are you getting guaranteed? Okay, so grass fed. Every beef in the U.S. is grass fed. Every cow that's for sale in the U.S. is grass fed. And that's because after a cow is born, it stays with its mom until it's nine months old in what's called a cow-calf operation. 
it then is considered a stalker or feeder and it's then moved to a feedlot where it is fed until it, it reaches market weight. It's fed on corn. When it's on the grass with its mom until nine months, it's mostly eating milk um, from its mom and it's eating a little bit of grass. The grass that those cows are on is pretty much patches of bald dirt. It's not pasture. Um, it's not it's not high quality ground. Cow calf is the sort of it's the most marginal part of the the beef system. Um, but there's not a lot of money in it, and it's mostly done in really marginal areas of the U.S. So every animal, every beef in the U.S. is grass fed. It means nothing. Grass finishing is what really counts. The reason from a health perspective that you should want to eat grass finished meat is because of the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. The omega-3 to omega-6 ratio means the amount of fats in the meat that are coming from seeds, which are the omega-6s versus the omega-3s. You want a as close to a one-to-one -one ratio as possible. We test that in our products every year, and we're usually 1 to 1.2 to 1 point to 1 to 1.6. So we're right in the one-to-one -one range. We test many of our competitors, and even meat that is labeled grass-fed and finished is sometimes the 1 to 20 ratio. Of what? Threes to sixes, yeah. What the hell are they doing wrong? Well, so grass finishing. Okay. Technically a grass. A grass can be any sprouted grain, technically. So uh, what I have not seen but I have heard done is people simply sprout wheat or sprout corn. So they germ the same way you can eat a sprouted almond. You can just make a sprouted corn. It doesn't look exactly like corn. You can feed that to an animal in a feedlot. That is considered grass finishing. <laughs> no way. That is sneaky. I didn't know that. I've also visited myself a grass finishing feedlot. Um, which is actually a very prominent farmer that sells at all the markets around here. And his animals are all kept in a feedlot. They are fed brown pellets. Those pellets are alfalfa seeds. Alfalfa is a grass. It's a grass seed pellet. It's a very marbled meat, and it's technically grass-fed, and it's advertised as grass-fed and finished. So there's a lot of workarounds. Now, those alfalfa pellets are probably not cheap. You know, like, it's not like it's a really cheap way to go about it. It's just a lot easier than keeping a lot of green. Because the problem with getting fat on your grass-fed meat is that, especially in California, seasonal grass, you, we move our animals, you know, it's a total of nine hours from down from Watsonville all the way up to the Klamath uh, River Basin in Oregon to find green grass for finishing. Because they have to spend at least two months on really sweet green pasture before they go to market so they get the marble and that, you know, that fat. That's really expensive. <laughs> so there's a lot of workarounds. So grass finished means can mean a range of things. Now, how many people are doing those sprouted wheat and sprouted corn and alfalfa pellets? That guy who's doing the alfalfa pellets, I mean, I don't know if that's the mainstream or not. I, I think a lot of great actors are doing great things too and super high integrity. So I'm not saying look askance at everybody. I'm just yeah. saying that be questionable. If the meat looks super fatty and is really consistent year round and you're being told it's grass finished, I would question that. Grass-finished meat is a pretty seasonal product. It's always going to vary slightly. Um, and you're, you know, you're never going to see a really, really high marble on an animal that's, um, you know, sometimes you'll see that on like a four or five-year animal, but that's not something that's viable to raise and very few people do it for a lot of reasons. Um, so I would just be really cautious about that. So that's grass-fed and finished. Um, now, what about just on the beef still, what about if something, if beef is just doesn't say anything about being grass-fed, say I go to Whole Foods and I get organic beef, does that just mean that whatever feed, whether it be soy, corn, alfalfa, whatever that animal ate is organic? Correct. Okay. Which basically, it still totally sucks if that's the case. <laughs> like, I don't even, I don't want a cow that's eating organic corn and soy, right? Because yeah. I don't, I don't want to eat that stuff anyway. Yeah. What about like when you, you have a grass finished animal, but you're ranching somewhere like in Idaho and it snows and you don't have fresh grass. So it, I've, I've heard that there's um, some risk of say like stored hay or alfalfa that they're being fed when it's, you know, frozen out that there's you know a lot of mold contamination and stuff like that in the feed do you see any issues with that i mean i that's not something that we've dealt with just because i've never farmed out there yeah um you know i think that any grass finishing operation in a in whether that seasonal is going to that would be responsible be putting up silage because yeah. the silage has just and that's just a, a, a fermented grain essentially um and that has higher protein and you're going to need that but you really can't finish cattle on grass on on hay and silage I mean, you just don't oh, get okay. the fat. It's, oh, okay. it's just always going to be inferior. We never, in the depth of the drought, I think we, we sold some hay-finished beef. 
you you know it, it's just think about it those sugars they mature out of the i mean they it's basically you just really um don't get that fattiness and that um flavor quality if you don't get that complex rich sweet grass fresh green grass so we won't sell it if it's not been finished on green grass right and the way that we do that is we lease pasture all around and then we also have irrigated pasture on our farm now we have about 2,000 acres of irrigated pasture and we rotate animals through that. We can only get green grass on that in like six months of the year. Um, and it's something we have to manage really intensively. But that's also a privilege. Most people with irrigated pasture, they're going to prioritize that for a higher margin product like tomatoes or something. In our area, it's just there's not the right weather for that. But there's not many farms that are using irrigated pasture for finishing pasture. So it just I, the, the claims are, you know, there's just nothing substitutes for knowing more about the story and, and, and poking holes. And, and, you know, I've, I know plenty of bad stories, but I also know plenty of super high integrity people that are really doing the right thing. And sometimes, you know, it's sad because the farmers that are doing the best things are the guys that are working so hard at it. They don't have the communication tools to be able to tell that story to their customers, you know, and they're the guys with the nine by 11 photocopy thing, you know, taped to their farmer's market stand, you know, just trying to, trying to make it, make it go, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's like, and then there's the guys who are kind of shinier and maybe able to spin something a bit more. Yeah. They have branding and marketing and nice website and stuff like that. Um, speaking of website, have you guys considered um, going mail order at any point? Is we're that in just the- about to launch that? Oh, cool! Yeah, okay, good. In um, good. February, we're going to be launching. So right now, actually, I think this week we launched Amazon Fresh here in Southern California. Oh, awesome! We are already throughout Northern California. We have over sixty items. We have our bone broth, all of our soups, um, and then within the month of February, we're launching like lamb chops and all of our fresh cut meats on oh, Amazon that's Fresh. Great. And Amazon know, Fresh is amazing. I, I know people like listening to this are like, oh, that's great for you a-holes that like, yeah. live, you know, live in LA. It's literally like Bell Campbell's a mile away I from know. my house, you know? But at least it's, I mean, I know for me, of course, I go to Bell Campbell's all the time, but I got two little kids and it's just great to be able to do it on Amazon and you yeah. hit that $40 minimum order and it's free shipping. And it's, it's amazing. Really, it I saves or- me that heartache of going to I almost buy everything store. in my life um, on Amazon and just online. Like I don't run errands really anymore. Yeah. Like just why go to Target? Like for anything, you know, it's a but waste of time. We are also launching a proper online store. Um, oh, cool. And, you know, my thinking early on was like, wow, there's so much, you know, there's so much space in this market. There's just not very many good players. And I felt that the farmer's markets and the CSA market plus online were things that it's like, well, let's leave those to other guys, you know, and let's focus on this bricks and mortar thing. What we've got going now is enough interest in our brand and some of the different things that we do that we've been getting requests more and more to do online. And with the volume that I've been hitting with the Amazon Fresh, it's like we can just layer on that online fulfillment. So we'll be launching with, I think it's a 60 to 70 item store, hopefully by the end of February, if not middle of March. Oh, awesome. Um, everything from steaks to bone broth. So by the time this airs, that will probably have already happened. Okay, so great. that's perfect. Yeah, okay, it'll be cool. exciting. It's about time. It took us only five years. <laughs> and then <laughs> that, that's, not, that's actually pretty good. I mean, you have quite an operation going. I want to go back to the labeling because I think this would be a great service to the listener because I get emails all the time like they see me people see me on my Instagram stories like doing my egg yolk smoothies like what are the best eggs like yeah. in Whole Foods and it's so overwhelming what's up with the labeling on eggs like how could someone walk mm-hmm. into their Whole Foods and skip past all the fake marketing of the ones that are maybe GMO or just subpar, like what does it mean when they say free range or cage free or pastured or organic? Can you break that down? In yeah, way? so um, f- free range and pastured is challenging because technically what you need to do to label your product with that information is you need to have a door where the chickens could go outside. <laughs> That's such bullshit. See, this is the kind of stuff I like to expose. I don't. It's like the punk rock teenager in me still. It's like they're lying to me, man. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna tell everyone. You know, it's like I'm like the whistleblower. So okay, so carry so on. So it's it's challenging. I mean, I don't. If I am in a pinch and I'm gotta grab eggs somewhere else than Belcampo, I'm gonna look for organic, free range. I mean, that's the minimum. What, what about cage free? Does cage free mean? Is that even better than free range? Because it's like there is no cage to even no. leave the door open sometimes. No, because the cage free is what's called a battery operation, which is when you actually have animals in cages. Then there's 
there's no, I mean, okay, so there's different tiers. You can either have boxes and boxes of cages in a, essentially a hoop house, right? And they're, that's the, pretty much the worst. Which looks very cruel, by the way. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Then you have, and that's, you know, that's where you have all the damaged animals and then, you know, it's, it's, it's raw. So the, the, that's the confinement battery operation. Um, then the next one is you, you'd have the animals moving around inside of a hoop house. Then you'd have the next best option is what you'd hope is that you'd have a hoop house that has access to the outdoors with a big, nice open pen that the animals use a lot. Then the very best thing would be you'd have a place where there's a place for them to go in at night. But by the way, the structure is built, they have to spend most of their day outside, right? That's what we have is that last one. The cage-free option just means that they're in a house able to move around inside of a inside of a pen, but they don't um, they're not outdoors. Okay, because I'm yeah I'm picturing like pastured and cage-free as being synonymous, and I'm just imagining they get to run around the woods and just go hang out and like eat grubs and like aren't even fed any kind of feed. They're just fend for themselves, almost like a wild turkey. <laughs> it's like no, have this very idyllic yeah, fantasy about it's chickens. unfortunate. You know they. Chickens are challenging because they've been bred to thrive in that environment. And, you know, if you just put a chicken in front of corn, it'll just sit there all day and just eat it. It's not going to go out and get itself some grubs. You have to make it go for it, you know, and that's just more management intensive and more and so, challenging. And how do you even, you know, protect the chicken from uh, predation, too, if it's We have cages. Uh, we, well, you know, where our farm is, we're backed up against the Trinity Alps. So we've got bears and we have golden eagles and bald eagles. It's like a smorgasbord for predators on our farm. So we've had to put um, all sorts of netting on top of our chicken coops to protect them. We've also used guard dogs before. Um, so we've got a number of different techniques. The dogs don't eat the chickens? After a while, they do. <laughs> they do. We had to get, like, we had to sell off our guard dogs because they all got developed a taste after like right. four or five years. It's probably just that our farm guys didn't know how to train them regularly That's is what funny. I'm assuming because I know other farms do a great job with guard dogs. So That's my, funny. I'm like, those dogs must be really dumb. They're sitting there guarding a tasty meal. Well, <laughs> you know, you know they, they raise them it. among, like they raise them not around dogs. They raise them thinking that they're a duck. They're just like a really tough duck or a chicken. Whatever species they're bred to guard, they're raised with that species from a baby and so they just think they're a really big chicken interesting until they eat one of their brothers and they realize oh i'm not a chicken that's funny yeah so we we have we use all those different things we've yeah. had to build our own special system yeah. to deal with the predators but there's some things you know free range rabbits so we raised rabbits for years and i i killed the program last year because we did raise them outdoors and rabbits are so bred in domesticity i think they're one of the first domesticated animals and they you know, they just couldn't defend themselves. And so it's just predation central, which is, I think, cruel, you know, just putting animals out so they're going to be preyed on. Right. And so we had to put them in cages inside. And then it's like, what's the point? You know, right. just a bunch of little sad cages with the cute bunny rabbits. I, was like, I don't care that much. I mean, I don't want to do that to just be able to sell rabbit meat and just not worth it. You know, so yeah. there's some things that we fail at. You know, we try to do it the right way. And my production costs were $80 a rabbit or something. Right, <laughs> Because right. so many of them were getting eaten. And right. it was just awful. So it's just some things you just fail at. And you just have to say, okay, we walk away if we can't do it the right way. Yeah. Um, but in general, these systems are all more costly. And the predation factor is pretty significant. But it, it's also interesting, too, because we raise two different breeds of chickens. They, our heritage chickens, our freedom rangers, predation is not an issue. Really? They, they're badass? Oh, yeah. They protect themselves. They protect each other. They watch out for each other. We also raise Cornish Crosses, which is the conventional sort of okay breed. And I raise it because people want that type of chicken. They want a chicken they can throw in the oven. It roasts up just like a normal chicken. It just tastes a little better. And, you know, it still is a great tasting Cornish Cross, but it's not an, you know, it's it's a really, really um, hybridized, I mean, a lot of ways hybridized breed. And um, those ones, though, I mean, predator gets in there, they don't know what to do. You know, the, the, the heritage birds, you can just tell. They're, they figure it out. They get together. They act together. They figure it out. They go inside. Cornish crosses are just like, they're just, okay, eat me. So yeah. what, about, what about pigs? So we covered some of the labeling mm -hmm. things we want to look for with chickens. We've got beef. I know a lot of people are adamant about not eating pork for religious and various other reasons. I don't tend to eat a lot of pork other than bacon. I love bacon, like especially good quality pastured bacon. But there's a lot of weird labeling things with bacon specifically too, like we were talking about at lunch, like uncured, no nitrates, this, that. When I go to the bacon aisle, I'm always dismayed too because mm -hmm. I'm thinking – what are what would pigs eat in nature? Probably everything in sight, if you think about a wild boar. And then what are they being fed on even like a decent sort of like, you know, um, progressive factory farm? They're yeah. probably still being fed a bunch of corn and soy. So 
What's the deal with raising a, a good tasting, ecologically sound, healthy pig? And how is that labeled? And what can we look for when we're buying pork products? In pork, there's a major, major differentiation around breed. Ah, right. Okay. The heritage breed thing? Okay. Any any of the, what we call the black, it's the black pigs versus white pigs. The black pigs are the old-fashioned pigs. They're tougher. They're resistant. They're bred for great tasting meat. I mean, they were, people eat a lot of beef now, but beef is a relatively new thing for us to eat as humans because beef are huge. They're really dangerous to kill. There's lots of blood. They go bad really fast, right? Pigs are really what people, and I mean, mostly you know, Europe and Asia, ate for centuries and centuries. Beef was something, it was like you're, you killed your tractor every once in a while, you know? That was what beef was before we had refrigeration and could keep it safe, right? Cool, So wow. pork neat, is neat like, factoid. well, I mean, it's like, that's like a beautiful metaphor is um, the piggy bank. The piggy bank is symbolic because you put a little bit of money in it every day or every week, and then you open it up after a couple of years, you crack it open, and you have much more money than you thought. That was the role of the pig in the courtyard, right, in your in your farmhouse. You'd give it a little bit of scraps off of your plate, a little bit of junk, a little bit of whatever, you know, trimmings from the garden. It'd go hungry for a month or two, eat some chestnuts, and then a couple of years later, you have plenty of bacon and hams and lots more than you anticipated just by putting little bits in it every day. That's the that's what the piggy bank symbolizes. That's crazy. Like. I didn't know that. I love that. Isn't that cool? I yeah, mean, it's it just is. like it, it, pork, and that's why you know the way we eat a pig is today is exactly how we ate it 500 years ago. You put some salt in the hams, you cure the bellies, you know, you make sausage out of the shoulders. That's that's how people been doing it for centuries and centuries. How we eat beef is very different. You know, back 100 years ago, we didn't really eat steaks. I mean, 150 years ago, we just did and have the refrigeration, you know, so. So even with those more robust heritage breeds of, uh, of a pig are, have those been less hybridized or those like closer to their There are much more resistant. Species? You know, we, um, the, so the land race pig, which is the white pig, they were bred for a couple things. They were bred for thriving on concrete. So traditional pigs are outdoor animals. They forage, they root, they tear up the earth. You know, you can always tell where our pigs have been on our farm because there's huge gullies and ditches because they root around for roots and everything. And um, if you take a land-raised pig or any white pigs and put them out into a natural environment, they actually won't survive because their feet get punctured by grass. Their feet are actually very soft and they were really bred for thriving in a confinement system. If you were to take our pigs and put them into concrete, they also would get sick and die. You know, they just, they're really bred for that environment, for thriving in confinement, which is a special skill set. You know, it's a rough world living in a, you know, those pig houses in the Southeast where they raise, you know, thousands and thousands of animals of Smithfield factory farms. I read in the Pew Animal Agriculture Assessment they did a few years ago that if the ventilation systems on those hoop houses break, they have a nine-minute evacuation timeline before all the animals and all the people in that hoop house die. Oh, my God. Nine minutes. Oh, my That's God. That's how intense the, the, oh the ammonia levels and the toxicity are. Nine minutes. Wow. Evacuation to get people out or they will die. I mean, wow. insane. So just right. saying it's like to yeah. thrive in that, it's a special, it's not, I'm not saying it's something that we want to select for, but it's, it is an adaptive selected, you know, set of characteristics that allow animals to live in that, right? So if we're standing at the refrigerator where all the bacon is, mm -hmm. what do we want to look for on the label? Is it going to tell, I don't remember seeing like heritage breed, not white pigs, you know, on concrete. Look, <laughs> it's like, okay, so use your senses and look for thick bacon. Okay, I've got okay. that down. I noticed that already yeah. just from like having the, quality bacon. I go, yeah, it's always kind of cut mm -hmm. thick. and it's it, Well, also just thick uh, in terms of the width of it. Yeah, yeah. And like it should be a good three inches thick, which means right. it's an older animal and it's not a land race pig. So that usually means a heritage breed. Okay. I would look for heritage pork okay. on it. And not many producers do that, especially not in the general grocery store. Yeah. Um, but I would look for a reference to black pig or heritage pork. Does black forest ham mean anything or is that just okay no. that's unrelated to the blackness of the pig just marketing okay okay cool. um that's just named for the tech i the, hypothetically the place in germany where this oh okay 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 interesting, interesting um okay. but yeah so for your bacon shopping luke i'm going to recommend you look for heritage pork as a signifier i mean pastured free range for pork matters too um definitely organic of course is another issue all of those are verified claims, but just like we were talking about with the chickens, you're going to see the word free range and imagine that those pigs are running around under the acorn trees. And really all that means is that they have a hypothetical access to the outdoors. And that's not really what you're looking for in terms of quality. So I would also just really use your palate and your eyes to make a choice as well. Look for that thicker, um, that wider piece of bacon. Look for a deep red color. 
taste it. If the first thing you taste is salt, sugar, smoke, don't eat it. What does that mean when they say, like, they're they're definitely pointing to uncured, no sugar, this, yeah, that? Like, so, does that mean anything? Well, the no sugar, for sure. I mean, sugar is a traditional component of most, um, you know, cured pork bellies around the world. But people who don't want any sugar, that's important. The uncured means that it's a no nitrate product. And that is, you know, the, the no nitrates is an interesting challenge because to claim no nitrates to make something that is safe and also legal, you have to use celery salt. Celery salt is a naturally occurring nitrate. Unlike chemical nitrates, with celery salt, you cannot dose it. So we, in terms of testing those products, we found that oftentimes the no nitrate uncured product actually has more nitrates than a cured nitrate product. Oh, man. Right? Because it's a natural substance. So you can't actually dose it. And you tend to, I mean, what you're encouraged to do and what we need to do to be compliant is to use, to err on the side of caution, which when you're having that natural product with varying levels of naturally occurring nitrates in the celery salt means that you have wildly different amounts of nitrates and oftentimes 10x of nitrates compared to a conventional product. So the uncured thing, you know, I put it on my products now. I'm also getting everything certified organic and it is a no nitrate. I'm doing a no nitrate bacon and no nitrate hot dog. I feel <laughs> like it's not my highest integrity moment though. You know, I'm doing it because I know customers want that. And I, I think it's probably slightly better to use the celery derived nitrates rather than the conventional ones. But is it head and shoulders difference like other aspects of our brand and what we're doing? No. Right. You know, so right. that those are all things. I mean, all of what I'm saying, too, in terms of these labels is like, yeah, these are useful proxies, but it's such a wild west out there. And there are so many claims and so many ways to smudge the truth. You got to be an activist and figure out where you're buying your stuff and where it's coming from. Cool. Cool. Good advice. Yeah. I think that finding people like you and finding people at the farmer's market where you can look someone in the eyes and like get the story behind what they're doing, mm -hmm. that's what I found to be helpful rather than just going. I mean, some of us don't have the luxury, but you go into Whole Foods and look at the bacon aisle, you know, it's like, oh God, are the eggs? It's like, where do I start? And so many people ask me about that. So it's really good, valuable information to yeah, share. It's crazy too. You go to Whole Foods and they've got that whole one to five rating system, right. which says that a number one, which you think of would be the highest, is actually the lowest and just conventional work. And a lot of their stuff is one and two by their own labeling system. Right. You know, but it's, sometimes you think, well, they've got a labeling system. They're They're verifying these stuff. So it's going to be better. You actually look in the labeling system, a lot of it's not. So you actually need to use their own tools sometimes too to help evaluate your choices. Right, right. And then there's the whole issue, and you know we're going to come to an end here because we've been going for quite a while, which I love, but I know um, you've got a, a daughter sitting on your lap now. <laughs> and she's probably not as excited about the show as I am, or the listeners. Um, in, terms of, in terms of the environment, I did want to cover this. You know, There's this movement of cowspiracy, the film, and there's a lot of people kind of in the vegan community that are super pissed and think that you know all animal farming is destroying the planet and and all of this stuff and if we could all just eat monocrops of corn soy and wheat and broccoli or kale or whatever that everyone would live happily ever after um from my perspective looking at people like joel salatin and people that really work with the land and the rotation of animals that you can actually improve land. I mean, we were doing pretty well here with, you know, 40 billion bison or how, you know, before we kind of settled this land. I mean, aren't animals inherently, if they're managed right, good for the land? Like, could you take those more arid parts of your property on your ranch and kind of bring those back to life by running animals through them repeatedly? Absolutely. And that's, we've, we are working with a third party group on, on tracking our carbon sequestration. And we've been doing it now for three years and the preliminary results are positive. I mean, that we are a positive carbon player. So our operation with livestock actually sequesters carbon. So, I mean, I don't know what more data you need than that. Granted, we're an outlier. We're not, I mean, that doesn't mean that. Yeah. But the example I give is, you know, saying cows are bad is like saying um, ways of getting from point A to point B are bad and bicycles and hummers are the same. Right. You know, bicycles and hummers are the same thing in terms of their input because that's what right. people are measuring when they when they come up with those data points. Right. Is they're just conflating two really different ways of getting from point A to point B and saying the same things and multiplying that. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's essentially playing into the agro-industrial narrative to say that cows are bad because you're saying, no, that the only way to farm them viably is in this massive, really damaging way. 
Right. That to me is not a solution minded thinking. Yeah, and farming plants in the same way is probably maybe not equally, but also destructive to the environment too. So kind of need to rethink the whole thing. And I know that's like a big can of worms to open, but thank you for the concise answer. And you've got a kid on your lap. You've got one in the other room that's screaming bloody murder because he misses his mommy. Yes. So we're going to let you go. Um, Before we go, I've got one last question for you. And that is, um, you've been a great teacher of mine as well as our audience today. Who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced you that we might go kind of above the food chain, no pun intended, uh, to where you've gotten some of your information? Absolutely. Um, The obvious ones are Carlo Petrini, the founder of Slow Food Movement, which is also where I worked in Italy later on, and just a big influencer for me in terms of thinking about traditional ways of having wisdom. Uh, I'd say by proxy Wendell Berry, who's also, you know, another person talking about traditional systems and the wisdom of traditional systems. And then this isn't somebody that I've worked with or known. I mean, I've met or known Carlo and Wendell, but um, Patience Gray, who wrote a book called Honey from the Weed, really early book about living off the land. She was married to a sculptor and lived in Greece and Italy, kind of itinerant guy following him around while he looked for marble. And she lived off of weeds and honey and stuff like that. I mean, that's the name of the book. But to me, it was a book that taught me about just a very like sensual, lovely way of foraging. And I think about we think of thrifty eating as, as something that's kind of like painful. And we don't realize that it's like actually the most joyous thing, you know, instead of like just having endless abundance and endless choice, making something magical about from something really essentially impoverished is like the greatest luxury. That's awesome. That's great. Well, thank you. We're going to put those in our show notes. And thanks for the recommendations. And the last thing I need from you is where can people find you? Website, social media, et cetera. Where do you want to point our audience to? Belcampo.com is our website. Um, I am at Anya Fernald. And our Instagram handle for the company is at Belcampo Meat Co. Um, You can also get my book, Home Cooked, um, which is lots of kind of old-fashioned, simple ways, meat-centered, but also lots of veggie stuff as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for lunch today and for coming over and joining me. I really appreciate having you as a guest. Hey, the next show is going to be about your transformation after you start using lard as ice cream. (laughs) Totally, yeah. (laughs) I know. That was actually one of my questions. She gave me like a a big can of of pork lard to use as face cream. And you make some too, which I'm hoping that's going to be on your site. Yes. Uh, And so that's something you can look forward to too. All right. Awesome. Let's get out of here. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. And this moment right here concludes part two of our interview with Anya Fernald. I'd like to encourage you to go back and check part one, obviously, if you missed that on Tuesday, because there was tons of great information given in that half as well. This was a really fun and informative episode for me. I trust that it was for you as well. I would really like to thank you for joining me. I know there's a lot of great podcasts you could be listening to, and the fact that you joined me on this episode means so much to me as well as our esteemed guests. So continue to listen. Don't forget to come back next Tuesday for number 58 with Dr. Mark Youssef, where we talk about the power of stem cells. If you're digging this content, if you enjoy this show, the most powerful thing you can do to support it is to go into iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. I know this is something that all podcasters request, and there's a reason why, because it really helps you to get up in the charts in iTunes, and the higher you get up in the charts, the more listeners you get, and everybody wins. So I want to get this information out to as many people as possible. So leave a review, or even just share this episode with a friend. It would be extremely meaningful to me. Thanks again. See you Tuesday. Okay, now that we've wrapped up another episode and are even more inspired to live a healthy, happy lifestyle, I want to remind you to go to Organifi.com. That's spelled with an I, Organifi.com. Check out the green juice powder. It's fantastic. And what's even more fantastic is that if you enter the code LIFESTYLIST at checkout, you're going to save a whopping 20% off your order. Go to Organifi.com, enter the code LIFESTYLIST, save 20%.